0: It's right there. I see it now. It is good to be in the house of the Lord together this morning. I would like to invite Chris and Makoa to roll on up here. Nice. Excellent roll. If you weren't here last Sabbath, an amazing event happened in the life of Chris and Makoa. A miracle took place according to some that I've heard. Um, And that's something to celebrate, how God has worked. And Chris and Makoa were baptized last week. And we just wanted to take a minute, just in case you missed that, to know that they are now a part of God's kingdom. They're a part of our church family, and to welcome them. And we have to kind of commemorate We have um, beautiful baptismal certificates that are written in a way that I could only dream to ever write it. It's quite nice. So whoever does it, I think it's Catherine, um, one of our secretaries. It's beautiful calligraphy stuff up here. So we are just thankful that they have have listened to the call of God in their lives and that if you ever want to know if God is real, if you ever want to know if God can bring you back, I think, Chris, that's the story that I've heard. So just know that this, if you ever question if God is real, here is your evidence right here. So we just want to welcome you and praise God again for that amazing decision that you guys made last week. So thank you and welcome again. You, I'm telling you, I would like fall on my head the first time I went back, I would just, my feet would go. Oh, oh, to be young in today's age. Good things. We've been spending the last few, actually, I think most of this year um, so far talking about the disciples. We've been looking at disciples and learning what we can from their lives. And what we learned most of all was that each disciple was would have fit in well, maybe would not have fit in in most churches. Um, I'd like to think they'd fit in in this church, but a lot of churches, the disciples probably would have been shown the outskirts. You can sit over here outside and listen. And so we've learned that those are the people that God, that Jesus called while he was here on this earth. Today we're going to take a moment and ask what I think is a next logical step in this when we talk about discipleship. What is the cost of discipleship? And so we're going to take some time looking at that this morning. What is the cost of following Jesus? And today I just I have a question to ask as we get started. If I were to begin anything with this phrase, tell me what you would think. Once Upon a time. Okay, already you guys are with me. You know kind of what's going to happen. There's going to be some fairy tale type story. And if we have a handsome prince and a fair maiden, we know something good is going to happen. Something will become between them, but the handsome prince will ride to save the fair maiden, and life will live happily ever after. All right. You're with me already. This is going to be a good day. You know what's going to happen. What we don't realize often is that Bible writers had that same sensibility. And today we're going to spend some time looking at the cost of discipleship in the context of Luke. So we want to take a moment to just kind of Set the, set the stage for what we're going to talk about because it's very important. Today we're going to not kind of take the whole New Testament or the whole Bible into, into, into focus. We're going to just kind of focus in on the gospel of Luke and ask ourselves a question. What was Luke trying to tell us? Luke, you may not know this, Luke traveled with Paul. Of the New Testament, Luke is the second most prolific author in the new testament writing the gospel of luke and the book of acts and he wrote these books while he was on journeys with paul you see it in several times he refers to we and us going places and there's debate over when the book was written the book of luke and acts but it probably happened while maybe paul was in jail or luke was on a journey with that so that's kind of a context to help us just understand where Luke was coming from when he wrote this. As we all know, he wrote to Theophilus. He wrote to... Okay, it's there. I was trying to be all cool and not look back at the screen and just know it was there, but whatever. (laughs) It was written to Theophilus. A person outside of the Jewish faith, outside of that, that Luke just wanted to say, Hey, listen, what we're doing... As we're traveling around, this is what it's about. Some people think that maybe he was even trying to be political about it and just say, hey, we're not, we're not coming to destroy you. So he wrote it to, he had a specific person, an audience in mind when he wrote his book. When you look at the Gospel of Luke, most people notice that it was the Gospel to the marginalized. Those on the outskirts, those that were poor. It makes sense with Luke being a doctor, but that was the audience that Luke was writing to and the concern that Luke had as he wrote. The third thing is the book of Luke is kind of divided and given in different scenes. And the last scene where we're going to be taking place takes place when Jesus was journeying from Galilee up in the north down to Jerusalem to meet his death as he was going to be crucified and so that is the setting for the story that we are looking at today the story is found in luke chapter 18 if you have your bibles you can open up there with me luke chapter 18 and we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler Now, I've said that, and I'm going to show you why I think that's a horrible name that we always have in that. But let's start with reading the Bible. The Bible says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there it is. This is the opening question. This ruler is wanting to know, what he must do. And so we're going to unpack this today as we look at the cost of discipleship. I just want to stop and focus on the first phrase, a certain ruler. This is Luke's once upon a time moment. So often we take all of the gospels together. We put them, mash them up and say, this man was rich. He was young and he was a ruler. And it takes almost three of the gospels to put all of that information together. We make some assumptions. One, not, one gospel says one thing and one thing says another. But for today, I want us to throw aside the concept of we're talking about the rich young ruler. Because Luke is pointing out that we are looking at a certain ruler. Because this, this intro is not just an ordinary once upon a time. There is something already that we can learn about what Luke is trying to convey to us. And so we want to look at the rich in Luke, okay? Because you will see this. So let's, if you want to, I've got the, the references up there if you would like to look at this. But let's think about this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, there's a story of the rich fool. And if you were to go to that story, almost every translation would have say something similar to a certain rich man. Luke chapter 16 would be the same. The shrewd manager, a certain rich man. And one more time, it comes up in the rich man and Lazarus. The story starts off with a certain rich man. Now I say this to point out the fact that when we come to the story, we come with baggage. We come knowing that this is the rich young ruler. We know that wealth plays a problem later on in the story. But if Luke was trying to point out that this man's sole problem and what he was trying to point out about him was, in fact, his riches, he probably would have started the story, a certain rich ruler. But he doesn't do that. He starts it off with a certain ruler. So already we can see something about what what Luke has in mind for telling us about the concept of discipleship in this story. So let's go back to our text. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. We're, we're unpacking this verse. I hope you're sticking with me. Call me good, phrase by phrase. We wouldn't look at this. Maybe we'd look at this and say, why is Jesus getting all bent out of shape for being called good? But it's interesting to note what happens with that because God's goodness is the bedrock truth of Scripture. Let me say that again. God's goodness is the bedrock truth of scripture. Let's look at that. Good and upright is the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. These are the cries of the psalmists as they were Crying out to God, saying, "God, you are good." When we, when I come home, and my wife is there waiting for me, and she says, "How was your day?" My most common response is, "It was good." How are you doing today? I'm good. How was the food? It was good. How how you know how's your family? Well, they're good. We, we get so used to throwing this word just kind of casually around as our catch-all, but the Bible is saying that God defines what goodness is. God defines goodness, and it is more than what we give it credit for. And so when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, he did not give credit for what he was saying. He was not giving Jesus credit. He already knew that if this man, if this ruler knew that Jesus was good, he would have been ready to listen. God's goodness is the bedrock truth of Scripture. Or you can say it this way. God is good. Okay, I heard it. I heard it somewhere over here. God is good. There it is all the time. This is the essence of what this scripture is about, saying that if we believe and have said that I believe in Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, that God's goodness, His goodness can take me from a broken, spiritually empty person, and His goodness will provide the answers that we are looking for. So when we come to Jesus saying that, God, we know you are good, we better be ready for His answer, knowing that in His answer, there is power for our life. God is good. And all the time, God is good. So often, though, we, we do take God in this empty fashion. And I don't know why that is. Why is it that we get so lost and just begin to treat God's goodness in a way that removes all of the power that is provided in his goodness. So continuing on, the rich young ruler said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we're going right through this now. Now we're to the crux of the situation. The question that this young man wants to know. The heart of the conversation. What is required of me? I'm sure I've said this to some of you before, but I always go to my college experience. My college experience of going to a class on the first day of class. And let me know if this was you. You show up, you sit down, and the syllabus is handed out. And you fly through that thing as fast as you can, searching for what the minimum amount you have to do is to get the maximum grade. Okay? The minimum effort for the maximum out return. Okay? Right now I'm in my master's. I'm working on my master's program, um, which I meant to tell you before I started my sermon a little bit about that. I was in Lincoln, Nebraska last week um, taking a class, and I'm going down to Riverside next week to take another class, and these are amazingly rich experiences for me in my development and just learning, and so I I love it. But six months before that class starts, I am online harassing the, the coordinators of this program, making sure I get the syllabus, and looking through to find out just what they think they're going to require of me, how much papers I'm going to have to write, how many pages... How many books do I have to read? What sort of craziness do I have to do? How much of this work do I have to do with some other person? Because that just slows you down. Or maybe I'm the one who would slow them down. That's probably the more truth of it. We want to know what is required of us whenever we enter into a relationship. What's required of me in my marriage? What's required of me in my relationship with my best friend, how much effort do I have to put in to keep that relationship cruising along? We want to know what is required. What must I do? Jesus answers, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these, he replies, I have kept since I was a boy. This is, thank you, Isaac. That was starting to freak me out a little bit. Sarah was still up here watching me and her and that amazing picture. Um, This is the second time this question is asked in Luke. The first time it is a certain lawyer found in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is a story we know very well. A certain lawyer comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers very similarly, similarly, except for he says, You tell me what's required. What does the law say? And, he, and, the, and the man quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, I think it is. You know, do good to your neighbors, love God, love people, is what he essentially says. And out of that is the story of the Good Samaritan. The second time this question is asked, What must I do? But it's interesting to note that the lawyer was trying to confront Jesus and challenge him. The ruler, as you look at this story, you realize the ruler's not trying to challenge Jesus. He apparently has genuine motives for wanting to know what he must do. He has the sense that something is missing in his life. I tell you, if you have that sense, doing what the rich, I keep making that mistake, doing what the ruler did, going to Jesus is the first step you need to take. He apparently had a genuine motive for going to Jesus. Jesus responds to his answer. When he heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing sell everything you have give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me you still lack one thing because remember Jesus gave the list of these commandments the second half of the of the 10 commandments minus one there's one that was missing and he Comes to him and says, Jesus, I've kept all of those things since I was a young boy. But yet he still is lacking one thing. There's an author that had an interesting quote about this. If entering into life was dependent on keeping the commandments, the rich young ruler would not have been excluded since jesus gave no indication that he was dissatisf- dissatisfied with the young man's claim jesus never said no you're not you're not keeping these commandments because it could be that the rich that the ruler i will get that out of my speaking at some point that the ruler that came to jesus had in fact kept to the best of his ability the commandments, the letter of the law. He had done that, but yet one thing was still lacking. If entrance into God's kingdom was dependent solely on keeping the commandments, this man would have been there. But it praise God it is not solely dependent on us keeping the commandments. We see this. We get so caught up in focusing on the list and trying to make sure I am keeping the commandments. And when we do that, the second that we try to go about as the rich, as the ruler, my goodness, that's hard to stop. As the ruler did, we have put our eyes upon ourselves looking to ourselves to provide the strength, power, and judgment of whether we are keeping the commandments or not, as opposed to putting our eyes on Jesus and allowing Him to work through us. Because Jesus came not to just keep the law. The Bible doesn't say Jesus came to just keep the law. He came to fulfill the law. There is a difference between keeping the law and fulfillment of the law. Now, be very clear, I am not saying that fulfillment doesn't have the keeping aspect, but the focus when we say we are trying to keep the law or we are trying to fulfill the law is only a difference in where our eyes are focused as we try to succeed in our Christian walk. Keeping the commandments, I look at myself, fulfilling the commandments, I'm looking at Jesus. Do not think that I have come, Jesus said, to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see that in the story, the Sermon on the Mount that you find throughout the Gospels. Jesus saying, you've heard it said that this, but I tell you this. Fulfillment of the law, fulfillment in our lives, fulfillment for this rich ruler would have happened if he had not been focused solely on what he had done something was missing jesus responds when he hears this he says when he or this isn't jesus this is the ruler when he heard this sell all that you have and follow me he became very sad because he was very wealthy jesus looked at him and said how hard It is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, Peter, who we've talked about, and you know he was always there, we have left all we had to follow you, he replies. Now, I want to take a moment and look at some elements in this to really kind of try and figure out what Luke is trying to make the point. Because there's in this text, there are phrases that we can get caught up on. We can get caught up in the fact that it says it is hard for rich people to get into heaven. Going back to what I said earlier, if that was Luke's point, he would have called this a certain rich ruler. But if his earthly riches weren't the exact problem, weren't the only problem that this man had... There was something else. We would have focused on the riches. But this man had another problem that came about because he was rich. Does that make sense? It's not because he was rich that it was the problem. It's because of his connection to his wealth that was the problem. It becomes about priorities. But notice this in the text. This gets a little bit in depth of sorts, but you know, those fancy words, we theologian type people, which I consider myself on the lower class of that, but whatever. Um, The chiastic structure, the kind of where you see a point and it moves and then you kind of see it moving back down the A, B, C, B prime, A prime. We're going to look at that because I think in here it shows you, it just kind of makes clear what the point is of this story. It starts off with, sell all you have. The command to the ruler was, listen, dude, sell what you have and follow me. Remember, he came to the good teacher, and the good teacher had the good answer. Sell all you have, follow me. Then you will have what you are missing in your life. It then goes on a little bit later. It says, how hard it is for those who are rich to enter into heaven. Then you have the comment, then who can be saved? Going back, you then see what is impossible kind of contrasted with hard. And then you, have, you come to the Peter statement, we have left, we have done that. The point that I want to show here is that Luke is trying to answer the question of what must I do to be saved with the, with the concept of who can be saved? Because we've all had that question. This is the question that we're trying to figure out, that Luke is trying to let us know about, is saying that who can be saved? Because it looks like it is impossible. But what is impossible for us? The Bible says is possible for God. When we come to Jesus saying, Lord, there's something missing in my life. Lord, I feel like I am not with you. I feel like I do not measure up. How can I be saved? We can come to this story and see that it is not about what we can do because what we can do is hard and and next to impossible. But what God can do is possible. The cost of discipleship. The difficulty of this, of this cost alludes to the challenge that all would-be disciples, that all would-be disciples face. Where does the power to follow Christ come from as we begin to talk about a journey of a discipleship journey in our church as we look forward to what that might bring as we begin to take the first steps we have to ask ourselves where does the power to follow Christ come from the young man one author says referring to this story, but first he must accept the conditions of discipleship. He must give himself unreservedly to God. The cost of discipleship is simple. It's everything that you have. It's giving everything to God, and when he asks for something, being willing to give it for his honor and for his glory. It is about having a priority that says, I will follow Jesus no matter what the cost might be because the cost on this earth is so worth spending eternity with Jesus. The cost will have been worth it. And this rich, young ruler lost sight of that. And as Jesus was on that path, on the journey, on the road, and this rich young ruler comes and stops Jesus on the road and says, there's something missing in my life. Good teacher, help me. He misses the light that is right in front of him. Another statement from the same author, By beholding the matchless love of Christ, the selfish heart will be melted and subdued. By looking to Jesus, the selfishness that we contain in our lives, the selfishness that defines and drives us and causes us to say, God, I want to follow you, but right, not right now because I've got so much here. The matchless love of Christ will melt the selfish heart. The cost of discipleship is met when we look to Jesus. It is only through the unmerited grace of Christ that any man can find entrance into the city of God. The unmerited grace was offered to that young man that day. And he chose to walk away sad. Friends, today, this week, this past week, we maybe have been in that same situation where we have come, cried out to Jesus and said, Lord, I just don't understand why it is that I struggle or desire or crave or whatever it is. But the unmatchless, unmerited grace of God is what is where our power comes from. The power of grace in our lives is what allows us to Be transformed into a true disciple. To let the selfishness of our lives pass away. And God extends his hand saying, I offer you that unmerited grace today. This is where the power to be a disciple comes from. There's another story in Luke of another young man who had a very similar experience in his life. He knew he could be rich and wanted it and said so he went and said, Dad, give me your money. What's mine? And he goes away. Like the rich ruler, he takes wealth and he turns his back on his family. He turns his back on God and he goes out. The only difference is is that in the dark road he turned Back And was willing to say, I can't do this. I can't do this. God, I need your help. The cost of discipleship is worth the reward. The cost of discipleship can only be paid when we look to Jesus. And take the power from his grace. That will allow us to begin to live a fulfilled life. A life that follows in the precepts of Jesus Christ. A life that is able to say, I will lay aside everything for the cross of Christ. Jesus longs to work the miracle of conversion in our hearts. Jesus longs to extend that hand and say, You can be a disciple. Pray with me. Lord, we spent some time looking at this story of the the young ruler who was too caught up with what he had. Lord, I pray that we would look to the power that comes from your unmerited grace, that our hearts would be melted by your unmatchless love. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to cry out to you and say, Jesus, help us. We want to live a life that others will look at and say, what do you have that I don't? Jesus, may we not turn our backs like the rich ruler, but may we turn to you and say, yes, Lord, I will follow you at all costs because spending eternity with you is worth whatever price we have to pay. Lord, to accomplish that, we fall upon your mercy. We ask these things in Jesus' saving name. Amen.